Father, thank you for sending your son to fight on our behalf. Thank you that Jesus Christ contends on our behalf in ways that we can see and ways that we cannot see. We pray that the shining light of our invisible warrior would be made present to us today as your word is opened and as we see your sacraments. We pray, Jesus, that we would worship you, that we would turn to you. We pray that you would win hearts this morning. And we pray that you would do that in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Hello and welcome. It's good to see you this morning. So in his novel, The Fellowship of the Ring, J.R.R. Tolkien introduces a character that most of us can relate with, Frodo Baggins. I think Frodo was probably the most Midwestern of all the hobbits. He loved family, kind of a good-hearted soul, no real enemies to speak of except his relatives. He kind of wanted to, you know, enjoy life in the Shire. Good food, meaningful work, hangouts, fireworks. But along the way, he found himself pried away from his precious homeland and cast into great responsibility in a battle between good and evil, a battle he did not choose. Sometimes he wished along the way that he could just cast aside this burden and return to simpler times. At one point in the journey, Frodo encounters an angelic-like elf named Galadriel. And Galadriel uh, has the power to help Frodo understand the, the true stakes of whether or not he chooses his calling that's been thrust upon him. Will he see it? Will he choose it? And so at one point, Galadriel pours water into a silver bowl, similar to this one. It's called the Mirror of Galadriel. She invites him to look into the water, to peer into it. And as Frodo peers into the water, he sees the great sweep of history that he's a part of. And seeing the past and the present and the future gives him some perspective because he sees how fierce his enemies are, how cruel they are how bent they are in the destruction of his land. He also sees glimmers of hope, signs of hope that he would never would have thought would have come true, like, the, like uh, Gandalf being raised from the dead. And he sees hope for the people that he loves. Our text this morning functions similarly as the mirror of Galadriel. It's a watery window, Exodus 14 is, to help us see the true stakes of our calling. As we look into the uh, escape of Israel, the perilous crossing of the Red Sea, we're reminded that we too are involved in a great struggle, whether we chose it or not. The struggle and the battle is real, and we can't go back to the good old days if they ever existed in the first place. When we open up Exodus 14, we see that our calling is more wonderful than we'd hoped, and yet... Our enemies are more perilous, and our path is more perilous than we feared. So the first reality that we see when we open this text and we peer inside of it is that we too have an enemy, okay? It wasn't just the Israelites that had an enemy. We too, even the nicest and most Midwestern among us have enemies. So the Israelites had a very cruel enemy. His name was Pharaoh. 
He was the king of Egypt. He wore a snake on his hat. He had an entourage of servants and priests and soldiers that followed him around wherever he went. And he operated under the delusion that he owned the Israelites. He thought he was a god that owned the Israelites. And so he made them do backbreaking work. And he had their Egyptian neighbors throw their, uh, throw their firstborn sons into the Nile River. And he did maniacal, delusional, cruel things because he thought he was God. And then the Lord God, who actually was God, decided that he would teach Pharaoh a theology lesson about who was the Lord and who was not the Lord. And so he brought about 11 plagues that increased in intensity each time, each intended to break Pharaoh out of this delusion and to humble him into true repentance and faith. And Pharaoh hardened his heart and resisted. And there was some kind of evil twisting Pharaoh's mind and evil at work in his reasoning and as a result, his choices. His heart was hardened against the living God. Eventually, Pharaoh goes from I own the Israelites to I can kill off the Israelites and I will kill off the Israelites as he finally becomes bent on an all-out genocidal war on defenseless men, women, and children. You can read with me about this in verse five of Exodus 14. It's printed there in your bulletins or you can look it up in your Bibles. Exodus 14, verse five. When the king of Egypt was told that, that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. This is toxic groupthink here happening. And they said, what is it that we have done? We have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot, took his army with him, the most advanced army in the known world at that time, which included, verse seven, 600 chosen chariots, and for that matter, all the chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. Weapons of war against children and women and men without swords that are miles and miles away, and he's chasing them. He wants to run them down and kill them. He doesn't want to have a meaningful dialogue with the Israelites. He's not looking to have some kind of a, you come some way and I come the other kind of compromise with the Israelites. He wants to dominate, oppress, and ultimately kill the Israelites. But you know the saddest thing about this whole chapter is that there's the Pharaoh with the snake on his hat, and then there's the Pharaoh inside the Israelites' head. There's a side of them that wants to collude with and cooperate with this maniac, with this abuser. Have you ever known an, abu an abused person? Anyone who's ever been, been emotionally dominated by, by someone else? Maybe by like a narcissistic person or abusive person? The most sad thing about knowing and walking with and caring for someone who has endured abuse or trafficking is that their abuser and their trafficker in some ways lives inside their head and has dominated them emotionally and mentally to the point where they're broken down and they take the perspective of their abuser. And they begin to say things like, you know, I, I deserve, he screams at me, I deserve it. I didn't, I didn't do things right. I've been messing up a lot. I haven't been sensitive to, to his needs, to her needs. I deserve to be locked in the house. 
Um, I, I need his, he's the only one who loves me. She's the only one who loves me. This is the kind of twisted thinking that happens inside the someone who's on the receiving end of abuse. Now, don't the people of Israel kind of sound like that? Look in verse 10. Verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. You know, they had seen all of God's works. They had seen the plagues. The Lord had not only taught Pharaoh a theology lesson, he taught them a theology lesson, as we've seen, giving them shelter, giving them help, uh, revealing his will to them. You know, in chapter four, all the elders of Israel listened to what Moses had to say about the Lord, and they believed Moses, and they fell down and worshiped the Lord. But here they are looking up at Pharaoh and fearing him, and they say in verse 11 to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to bring us to us and bringing us out of Egypt? Verse 12, is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. What? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? Well, first of all, Israel, you didn't say that. <laughs> Second of all, leave us alone to let our firstborn sons be cast into the Nile River generation after generation? Leave us alone to 400 more years of generational slavery? Leave us alone to impossible brick-making without straw from sunup to sundown until we are utterly broken? Israel has been broken down, and the enemy is in their heads. This is how our enemy works. He would rather us self-sabotage and self-select for slavery than have to do all the dirty work himself. He'd rather us just cooperate with him. For us to think that maybe he could have a meaningful dialogue with us, he wants us to self-condemn. Here's a question is very worth asking for, for anyone uh, on, on the road of faith, and that is this. If there was a personal evil force in the world today, which the evidence is pretty good that there is, if there is a personal evil force at work in the world, how would he take you down? Think about it. What's the, what's the plan that he would put together to turn you inside out and make you a slave? Might he flatter you with your victories one day before shaming you with your defeats the next day and just keep doing that, keep you on the shame, pride roller coaster? Might he tempt you to become a slave to something good, something otherwise could be used for noble and good purposes, like power, like money, like a, like a really good person you love, or maybe a cause that you believe in? Might he make you a slave to some of those things? Might he just poke the glowing embers of your resentments until they catch fire again? Might he suggest to you that maybe you're just too enlightened to believe in him at all? That maybe your cynicism is just intellectual honesty? Don't fall for it. The truth is, there is a personal evil force in our world today. That same malicious spirit that bent the mind of Pharaoh is seeking to bend our minds as well. The same malicious spirit that broke Israel's heart and broke their will is at work in our world seeking to break our will and break our hearts too. 
If there's a way to take you down, he'll find it. If there's a vulnerability in you, he'll be looking for it and looking for an opportunity to exploit it. As Peter says, the the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him. Now, how are we gonna resist him? And this is where there's hope. There's great hope that the enemy of our souls can be resisted because we don't just have an enemy, we have a deliverer. We don't just have an enemy, we have a deliverer just like the people of Israel. In their weakness and in their broken minds and in their broken spirits, they had a deliverer who cared about them, who was not going to leave them. And you know what the thing is about our deliverer is he has us exactly where he wants us. He has you exactly where he wants you. He has me exactly where he wants me. He, his sovereign hand covers over our circumstances and guides us in ways that the enemy can't see coming. Let's look at the first couple verses of our text here, verses one and two of Exodus 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi Hieroth between Migdol and the sea. Now, in front of Belzephon, you gotta go in front of Belzephon, all right? And then you gotta encamp facing it by the sea. Don't you love the GPS coordinates that God seems to be aware of? He's like, the, the exact pin Google map location, it was like, not only is the pin here, but it's, you're facing like this, you know? And so he knows exactly where he wants. And the thing is, it looks like a cruel trap. <laughs> He's making them, on the surface, sitting ducks to the armies of Pharaoh, perched up there, helpless. Pharaoh's going to see them and salivate. Look at the prey. They're so easy. I'm going to run them down, and they've got nowhere to go. Do you know why God does this? He is determined to drown the armies of Pharaoh forever. The Lord God is not willing for the Egyptian army simply to be outrun. He wants the Egyptian army dealt with once and for all. And unless Israel encamps here, let's see, in front of Piharoth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Belzaphon, encamp facing it by the sea, unless they're in that exact location, Pharaoh's armies will not be drawn into the waters of the Red Sea. The Lord God wants to drown the enemies of his people forever for the waters to wash them away so that they can, even though they have their own junk to deal with for the next 40 years, they won't be doing it with the threat of Pharaoh at their back. And so he's going to deal decisively with Pharaoh, deal decisively for salvation, a permanent freedom, a lasting joy. So he sets a trap for Pharaoh to walk into and he puts his people exactly where he wants them. The same is true for us. Same is true for you. The same is true for me. He's got us exactly where he wants us. He has us just where he wants us in our financial limits, in our difficult relationship we have with someone we really care about, in our toxic work environment where we're working for the good and we're working for change, but we're taking a lot of of, uh, abuse for it. He guides our life with his governing hand, working all the details of our life for our good and for his ultimate glory. You know, he wants you to share in his victory. He wants you to raise your hands and say, the Lord is my salvation. He had me exactly where he wanted me and he used all of it to bring me to his glory. He used all of it for my good. Your suffering is no accident with God. Are you suffering today? 
Are you enduring a trial? Maybe it's an acute trial. Maybe it's a long trial that's, that's kind of in a, like a chronic condition you're dealing with. You can't get out of it. The only way out of it is through the Lord. This is of his will. He loves you. You're his kid. He's caring about you. It's not an accident with our deliverer. He has us exactly where he wants us. As Pastor Robert Morgan uh, says, uh, commenting on this passage, the Lord tests our faith, leads us into hardship, teaches us wisdom, and shows us his ways. The same God who led you in will lead you out. The same God who led you in will lead you out. Not only does our deliverer have us exactly where he wants us, he also fights on our behalf. Verse 14, Moses declares the gospel. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord, he will fight for you. You have only to be silent. When Pharaoh and his armies charge at the people of God, he runs into the buzzsaw of the presence of the Lord. They couldn't see it coming. They didn't see it coming. Verse 19, then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. Now, what's the angel of the Lord doing? He's getting in between the people of Israel and their enemies. The angel of the Lord, which I believe was, was an early manifestation of the presence of Jesus Christ, was leading his people through the Red Sea so they knew which, which way to go. He was lighting the way. And then when the armies of Pharaoh started to chase him, the Lord God moved over and behind the people of Israel, still shining a light, this time behind them, while causing a confusion and a cloud and a disruption to the, Israel, to the Egyptians who were behind them. It says in verse 20, he came between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel, and there was cloud and the darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Skip down with me to verse 24. In the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. The Lord is the invisible warrior of Exodus 14 and of all of Exodus, and he's fighting the enemy in ways seen and unseen. The Lord Jesus is as gentle as a lion with, or gentle as a lamb with his people, and yet, you guessed it, fierce as a lion with our enemies. <laughs> Even in our weakest moments, Jesus is fighting for us. You know, one of the ways he fights for his people is he prays for us. This maybe doesn't seem like a significant thing to you, and that's okay, but one thing that you should know is one of the ways that leaders can fight for their people is to pray for them. Because prayer makes a difference uh, in ways that we cannot see and yet are eternally significant. Jesus prayed for us in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood, fighting the enemy in a way that Adam never could in the Garden of Eden, that Adam chose not to. Jesus stood up to the snake and he prayed to the Father on our behalf and he stepped on the snake's head by lifting up his arms upon, of love upon the cross and bleeding for us and dying for us to take away our sin forever. This is how he fights for us. He prays for us even now. He fights for us even now against perils and temptations and trials that you and I will never have to face alone or never have to face at all because he's fighting for you. He's still the invisible warrior. 
Okay, so if we have an enemy and we have a deliverer, what then are we supposed to do? What's our response to these two truths that are maybe a little bit too heavy, deep, and real for our tastes? What are we supposed to do? We need to follow the example of the Israelites and pass through the waters. We need to pass through the waters. That's all Israel had to do. Look in uh, verse 13 of Exodus 14. Verse 13, then Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Now, verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hands over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. So Moses stretches out his arms over the sea, stretches out his hands over the sea. There's an eastward wind that blows the sea in two. There's a canopy of water that's created for the Israelites. Maybe they got sprayed as the winds came through, but they walked through on dry ground. I imagine some of them walked through very triumphantly, saying, the Lord is my salvation. And some of them came through only because their mom was like, come here, you're coming with me. And some of them probably walked through being like, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. In any case, it didn't matter how strong their faith was. It mattered the object of their faith, whether or not they crossed through, because when they crossed through on the other side of the Red Sea, they were free. They weren't slaves anymore. When they passed through the waters, it didn't matter if their faith was strong. It didn't matter if their faith was weak, hanging on by a thread. It was the object of their faith, not the strength of their faith that saved them. It was the Lord who was their salvation. He made a way, and they just walked They just took a walk and passed through the waters. So how are we supposed to pass through the waters? We do it in faith. We turn to Christ as he stretches out his arms of love on the hardwood of the cross and says, today you will see the salvation of our God. When we pass under the cross of Christ in faith and we say, Jesus, I trust you to deliver me from whatever bondage I'm in right now. I need you to deliver me from sins I can see and sins I can't see. I need you to take me from death into life. And you know what? He'll do it. It doesn't matter where you are. We listened to a testimony in the first service about a man who, uh, who uh, was far from God. He was addicted to, to, to drugs and, and, and alcohol, and he was a man of anger. And he was in Blue Island in Chicago uh, uh, one day 40 years ago. And he was lying on the street, and he cried out to God, and he said, God, Save me in Christ. I don't have anything left, and I need you to save me. He was passing through the waters in faith, and he said that from the bottom of his feet to the, to the top of his head, he felt completely delivered, and he turned from alcohol, and he turned from drugs, and he turned from anger, and he turned to Christ, and even though he was an angry man then, he's one of the sweetest men at Emmanuel Anglican Church you'll ever meet. This is what the living God does. He does it in ways that are dramatic. He does it in ways that are hidden and subtle. He does it in all kinds of ways, but to pass through the waters means that you turn to Christ. And Christ asks all Christians, commands all Christians to pass through the waters of baptism, to be be made wet in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to share in the sufferings and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Today, all of us have a chance to pass through the waters of salvation. You know, maybe you've been baptized and maybe you follow Christ, but today is a unique day for you 
Today's a day for you to stand and not just reading the words off the page, but with all your heart and with all your might to, to renew your own baptism vows. Maybe you've never made baptism vows. These vows are taken from scripture, built from, from the scriptures, and there's a chance for you to renounce your enemy and renounce all of his underhanded ways and to turn to Christ and to follow him as your Lord, to, to confess that you are a citizen of heaven. First and foremost, no other place, no other Lord. This is a way for you to pass through the waters. Renew your baptism vows with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And do it in the name of Jesus. At one point in Frodo's journey, he is surrounded by his enemies. His enemies are black, uh, wear black. They're ghostly, nightmarish creatures called the Nazgul. They're kind of undead creatures. And they pierce him with an evil blade. And the wound goes deep. The wound begins to to take away his very soul, corrupt his very soul, and and take away the life in his body. And soon after, he, he passes out, and his king and deliverer finds him, binds up his wounds, puts him on a white horse, sends the white horse across a body of water called the Ford of Brunion. But before he can fully cross that ford, his enemies find him again at the ford, and they confront him. And even though he tries to, to, to renounce them, they, they're calling out to him in a way that, that, that draws upon this wound that he has, and he almost succumbs to their power. And right as he's about to be lost to darkness forever, This happens, and I'll read directly from the book. At that moment, there came a roaring and a rushing, a noise of loud waters, rolling many stones, and dimly Frodo saw the river below him rise, and down along its course there came a plumed cavalry of waves. He half fancied he saw amid the water white riders upon white horses with frothing manes. The black horses, the horses of his enemies, were filled with madness. And leaping forward in terror, they bore their riders into the rushing flood. You know, the truth is that we have an enemy. And he's wounded us deeply. But you know the even better truth? We have a deliverer. And as we pass through the waters, he puts our enemies under judgment so that we don't have to fear him anymore, so that we can become the sons and daughters of God that we are called to be, so that we can live in the promised land as free citizens of the kingdom of heaven. He'll drown our enemy, he'll bring us through the waters, and he will give us the healing we need on the other side. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that the people of Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore the next morning. Thank you, Lord, that the great power of God overwhelmed their disbelief and re-enchanted them, gave them a song to sing. Thank you that they passed through the waters, all who put their faith in you, Lord. Thank you so much that since then there have been a great company of saints that have followed those people through the waters. And I thank you that in Jesus Christ, we can join them this morning. I pray for the presence of the Holy Spirit now, that you would give everyone who wishes the power to renew their baptism vows and to turn to you in faith. 
And I pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.